In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a name that I have quoted to you on several occasions since I've been here, and his name is Christian Wyman. He is from my home state of Texas. He is a, thank you, he is a poet, he is an author, he teaches theology at Yale Divinity School. More importantly, he's a husband, he's got two daughters, and he has cancer. In fact, at his diagnosis several years ago, it led him to reconsider a faith in Jesus that he thought he had left behind forever, and he was surprised. A couple weeks ago, he wrote an essay that I really commend to you, so much so that we posted it in this week's web resources on the sermon page. You should go read it this afternoon if you can. The title of the essay comes from where he wrote the essay. And where he wrote the essay is what they call in the oncology world, the cancer chair. One of those vinyl lounge seats that where you come for what feels like to him a bloodletting, where they attach the chemotherapy to you, and you and how many other dozens of people in the same room walk around with your, as he calls them, cancer trees, being fed the stuff until they pull the needle out. And as only a poet can, he explains that experience with great vividness, sharing not only his own story, but the stories of those around him, both with hopeful and ashen looks. And the irony of him writing that essay at the time that he was is that at the same time he's writing the essay, he's also preparing for a class he was about to teach at Yale about suffering. And his primary text, as you might expect, was the book of Job. And so in the essay, he shares his experience and those of others of suffering. He surveys the variety of names throughout history that you and I are familiar with that perhaps we had no idea of what they suffered. And he catalogs the archive of wisdom that has come down to us through so many people's experience with suffering. And he concludes this, that when we suffer, when we suffer, it is not mostly a matter of asking the question, how are we going to endure this? How are we going to survive this? He would conclude that when it comes to suffering, there is a question we must all ask and find an answer to. And he puts it this way. Perhaps the question with regard to suffering and what it will mean in your life comes down to this. What will be the object of your faith? And what will your act of faith look like? Everybody who breathes is acting by faith. We've said it multiple times. There is no such thing as a life without a belief in something you cannot prove. But it is acutely felt in the times of suffering, in which you are having to place your faith in something. Because just try, when you suffer, to avoid going to those deepest places in your thought about what most matters. Just try. Try to stay at the superficial level of everything that you experience when you suffer. You will, of course, go to those deepest places about what most matters to you. And when you get to those deepest places, you will realize when you cling to them that you can't prove them. And it will be your act of faith. It's unavoidable. And that's what Wyman is telling us. If you believe in God, 
then the object and act of your faith is in him. But can we say anything more specifically or helpfully about that? Yes. That's why we've been listening to one chapter for several weeks, the one chapter of the whole Bible that you might call the elevator pitch of the good news of Jesus. It's Romans chapter 8. And last week, Paul turned his attention to the one topic that he better have, otherwise he's got no credibility, and that's the topic of suffering. And on this week, he continues that consideration when it comes to the gospel. And my argument to you is this. The question that Christian Wyman puts before us all, what will be the object and act of your faith when you suffer? It will be the Apostle Paul's answer in these six verses that are a pretty good start. What must be the object of your faith when you suffer? Three things that are really one thing according to this text. The Spirit's sympathy, the Lord's sovereignty, and salvation's certainty. The Spirit's sympathy, the Lord's sovereignty, salvation's certainty. Let's find out. We're in Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 26. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. Romans 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the reassuring word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week, if you were with us, you heard Paul make the case that if you would have faith amid suffering, then you must in part rest yourself in the hope of glory. And by that, you can give thanks for every single thing that's gone your way in your past, and that's a good thing. And you can savor the beauty and the wonder all around you in the present. But Paul also said last week, unless you are setting your mind at some point on the hope that is yet to come. It is like reading a book and then having the last several chapters of it ripped out. There's no resolution. Give thanks for your past. Suck the marrow out of your present. But set your mind on the hope of glory, he says. Set your mind on the hope of what is yet to come. That's what it means to have faith amid your suffering, so he says. And to us, it's like, Great. That sounds clear. That sounds compelling. That sounds straightforward. But man, don't you know what it feels like when you suffer? It's more than just pain. It's more than just disorientation. It's more than just confusion. It's a weariness. It's like carrying a log uphill. It's like trying to breathe with cinder blocks on your chest. 
And Paul knows that. It's a weariness. A weariness that you can't even quantify or maybe even describe. That's it. Suffering is many things, but it is also weariness. And when you are weary, you are weak. It is like hypothermia. You're in a warm boat and you drop into an icy lake. What happens? If your body wants you to survive, it's going to take everything from your extremities and focus it on your core to preserve that internal core temperature or you're dead. Suffering is like having fallen overboard and now every energy that you've got has suddenly been marshaled to one thing. Am I going to live another day? And therefore, all you feel is weak. And Paul knows that. And that's why he says unto us that the first object and act of our faith needs to be in one thing when it comes to suffering. And that is the Holy Spirit of God. The one who indwells you by virtue of faith in the Son of God. And not just the Spirit in a general way. The Spirit's sympathy. His understanding of your condition and of your need. First time we ever hear God speak of his awareness of affliction and his sympathy is in Exodus 3-7. Behold, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I understand their affliction. And now I will go down to meet them. That's the Father talking. In Hebrews 4.15, it says of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Sympathize with our weakness. He gets it. He meets it. And now here in Romans 8, as it was with the Father, so it is with the Son, so too the Holy Spirit. There is a sympathy he extends to us. And as long as we put our faith in that sympathy, we have something, a foothold in the suffering when everything else is falling beneath our feet. That sympathy, though, is not general. It's not just a ba- it's not pity. It's a sympathy of understanding in the same way that a friend can see into your soul just when they look at you in the eye. It's a sympathy that is roused to action like that same friend who can see into your soul through your eyes and understand your need and know how to go about helping you in the moment. That's the sympathy we're talking about. It's not generic. And it's needful. And we're desperate for it. Why? Because it's weariness that we face. Look, if you don't believe in God, and I really am glad you're here if you don't, you are welcome. But if you suffer, you will deal with the unpleasantness. You will grapple with the pain, and you will feel the devastation of it. But if there is no meaning in this universe apart from the meaning you give to stuff, then you can't be angry that the universe doesn't care about your suffering because the universe doesn't care about anything. If you believe in God, though, you need to hear what Paul says. Because not only when you suffer do you feel like the wind's been knocked out of you, now you've got to grapple with this thing about, wait a minute. If my faith is in a God who exists, who is powerful, and who is benevolent and good, what do I do with that in light of this? Exactly. Paul knows it, and so does the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit understands that when it comes to you facing your suffering, you will struggle with this. Not only how to understand it, but this whole idea of prayer. 
we, if you believe in God, you do not believe in a code. You do not believe in a philosophy. You do not believe in an idea that's etched in, in granite. You believe in one who is, has being, who is a person with whom you relate, with whom you're called upon to speak and then be some sort of spiritual communion. And so when it comes to being in suffering, you think, pray, pray without ceasing. I can't even put two words together. Pray for what? Pray for change? For it all to change? Look, when C.S. Lewis was a kid, long before he believed in Jesus, he at least heard about prayer. And when his mom was dying, he prayed. And what happened? She died. First prayers I ever uttered as a kid when was my mom was dying. And almost 40 years ago, what happened? She died. So what do I pray for then? Do you pray for change? Do you pray for insight? What if you never get an answer to why you're suffering in the way you think that you're suffering? This is why we have to have the belief and the sympathy of the Spirit, because he understands it. Because it is hard to believe, and it's certainly hard to pray. It is hard to pray when a friend of 10 years says to you, hey, I think we're done. It is hard to pray when a doctor calls you on the phone and says, hey, I need to set up an appointment with you. We need to talk. All of those things are hard. And sometimes all you can do in that moment is groan. And you might think that if all you can do is groan, that somehow you're missing it or you don't get it or your faith isn't strong enough. And here is where your act of faith comes in when you believe that the Spirit has sympathy for you. You're to be at peace. You're to rest in the fact that you are not called upon to put together eloquent sentences that never end in a preposition of prayer unto God. If all you do is groan, there is volumes of meaning in your groaning. Two years ago, uh, every year our, our denomination gets together for a general assembly. Uh, we, we learn, we pray, we talk, we, we, we fight. It's great. And one of the presentations was by a, a Korean pastor, one from South Korea. And, and he was here, there to address the assembly about what was going on between North and South Korea at the time and how even in that moment there was this little bit of a thaw between North and South, a little bit of a not looking sideways glances at each other anymore in terms of the highest those in political office and, and maybe a little opportunity to kind of you know move to the demilitarized zone and maybe begin to trust each other. And as that pastor told that story, we, we heard this noise. It almost sounded like an animal was dying. And it happened, and then it stopped, and we thought, well, that was weird. We moved on, and the pastor continued to talk. And then he began to talk about how in that new condition that might was starting to thaw between North and South Korea, that there were some new opportunities for, for ministry between churches in the South and the churches that were just new, nothing but oppression in the North. And then you heard the sound again, this, this wail. And again, we started to kind of scan the audience. Where is that coming from? And then it just continued as if the, the sound didn't care whether or not you heard it. And then we were looking around and we looked down our row and it's, a one, of our, it's one of our own. It's a pastor and he's, he's Korean and he's wailing. It's a woeful sound. It's almost like he's dying, but he's wailing and we're going, what is... And then we realize, why is he wailing? Here's a man who knows the history of his people divided for 80 years in this estranged relationship in which there was hate 
and vitriol and all manner of distrust and suspicion. And now maybe, maybe there was a hope of a thaw and he was wailing in woe at all of those 80 years of destruction. And maybe there was a certain wail of hope that there might be something new. And in his wailing, there were volumes of meaning. He didn't have to specify for us in complete sentences, what are you sad about? What are you hopeful for? Friends, it is good to know that we have the Spirit's sympathy because in your suffering, if all you can do is wail, he gets it. Two times it says the Spirit intercedes for us with two different versions of that Greek word. And the first Greek word means he speaks to God on our behalf. We don't have to worry about, is it getting through? Are you hearing me? And the second version of intercede is not so much on our behalf, but to speak with understanding. If you suffer, it's very possible you have no idea why and you don't have a clue and you've stopped asking the question. But in your understanding, in your lack of understanding, in your ignorance, there is a Holy Spirit who speaks on your behalf and who understands what you are asking, even if you can't even find words for it. The object of our faith, the first object of our faith is a sympathy and a spirit that invites us to rest even in our groanings. And it is that same spirit that helps us to find yet another object and act of our faith. It's the second thing Paul wants to tell us. And here we get to the verse that is perhaps the most famous and infamous of Romans 8. Let me read it to you again that you might brace yourself. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Some people find great encouragement in that. And some people hear that and at first want to spit. Because a lot of times, either in the way you hear that verse or you hear the way that verse is spoken of, you start to drop it into that category of sayings that you have heard from others that purport to be biblical, but in fact are gross distortions of what the text says. For instance, and you've heard me say this before, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. That's not what it says, and that's not a true statement. Um, If that's true, then why would Paul ever speak to us of being weak? If I always can handle this, then I'll never be weak. That's not a section. That's not a biblical idea. And the other idea that's sort of passed off as something that's found in Scripture but really not, everything happens for a reason, i.e., everything happens for a good reason, and it's just a matter of time before you understand that. That too, go for it. Show me. Let me hear it. Find the verse. Here's the problem, though. Some people hear 828 and they think, same category. He's wrong. He doesn't get it. God works all things together for good. Ha. Before we launch into what he means and what he doesn't mean, you've got to just back up for a minute and, and ask yourself, the, who is saying what's being said? This is not some dude that grew up in suburbia, who grew up in sort of industrialized, civilized nations. This guy is a Jew. He's a staunch Jew. He knows Israel's history. And what is Israel's history marked by? Threat, 
being overrun, being terrorized, being used as a chess piece in geopolitical battles. This is a staunch Jew that knew what it was to grow up in Palestine with Roman occupiers spitting in your face just because you were Jewish. This is a Jew that knew the whip on the back of his neck and his legs and knew false imprisonment. So don't look at Paul and say, you're just a man who lived in privilege. You don't know what you're talking about. He has a little credibility. And he's saying, even so, given Israel's history and my own experience as one who is familiar with suffering, even so, God is not aloof and God's hands are not tied. And therefore, if you want to understand what Paul is saying, it might be helpful to us all to figure out, first of all, what he is not saying. There are three things he is not saying. The first thing he is not saying is this, that everything happens to you is good. He's not saying that. Many of you in this room know the name Travis Johnson. You know he's a doctor. You know he's a father. You know he's a husband. You know he's trained at Harvard. You know he went to the mission field in Africa. And you know in Africa he was diagnosed with cancer and he had to come home. And you know he's been fighting cancer for years. And you may not know that a few weeks ago, Travis Johnson decided to be done with the chemo. Last week at Grace Blue Ridge, where he is a member, Chaz Morris, the pastor, was preaching on John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda, that place in Jesus' ministry where he shows up. There's a lot of invalids sitting around the pool because they believe that an angel stirs the water and whoever gets in first gets healed. And Jesus finds the invalid who's been an invalid for 38 years and asks this bizarre question, hey, do you want to get well? Chaz preaches on that passage, realizes I can't preach this passage unless I talk to my best friend, Travis. He confers with Travis, man, when you read this, what do you do with this? How do you do this? How would you preach it if you were me? Travis tells him, Chaz remembers that, and last week at their service at Grace Blue Ridge, he preaches, but he preaches mostly what Travis would say if Travis were preaching. And then when he finishes with the sermon, for the last 45 minutes of their worship, they gather around, put Travis in the center, lay hands on him, and pray for him. And even Travis is raising his hands, asking for God to heal him, even though he knows that if the trajectory continues, it's not going to happen barring a miracle. The way the church has rallied to him and his family, the way the community has not become afraid about the messiness and awfulness of cancer and yet rallied to him and loved him, the way even Travis himself is demonstrating faith and praying for himself, all of those things are good. But let's be very clear. What has happened to Travis is not good. It's an awful mess. So please don't put into Paul's words what you think he is saying when he says that all things are good. That's not what he's saying. The second thing that Paul is not saying is that whatever evil befalls you, whatever sorrow comes over you, whatever suffering you're afflicting with, that that's going to change here either quickly or immediately. He's not saying that. Remember Paul again, right? Who's saying this? Not some dude that lived in an ivory tower seminary and just sort of walked around giving lectures. This is the guy who was bred and born on the Jewish prayer book, the Psalms, which certainly heralds the goodness of God, certainly champions the power of God. But man, you don't have to read very far into the Psalm book to realize that one thing you have to do if you're going to believe in God is wait. There is no faith in him apart from waiting in him and waiting for him. 
It's not like a baby tooth. Well, as soon as the baby tooth comes out, the permanent tooth is right going to be back in there. It doesn't work like that. It's not quickly. It's not immediately. And that's not what Paul is saying. Even the author of Ecclesiastes, who you might say is the poster boy for an almost cynical faith, even he says in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Paul is not saying, oh, over the rainbow, it's just a matter of a few moments. He's not saying that. Don't make him say what he's not saying. Third thing Paul is not saying is this. However you and I might define what God working together for good might mean, don't think that your version of the good is going to line up with what God does that is still good. Let me put it this way. Some of you... Life has smacked you in the face, and what do you naturally do? You imagine a a happy ending. You imagine some sort of resolution to your awfulness, and that's natural, and we get it, and I do it too. And yet the, the plot thickens, and the story takes a funky turn, and what happens? Something good comes your way. It's just not the good you thought would be there. You had an idea what would be good, That good doesn't appear, but something else happens. And if you are just honest with yourself just a little, you realize, yeah, that's good. I know it's good. It's not the good I wanted, but it is a good. Paul is not saying that the good you expect is the good he always delivers. Paul himself, I'm sorry to keep going back to him, but you've got to consider the source. How many times does he say, man, I had a thorn in my side and I asked God to take it. How many times? We have no idea what it is. Maybe it was an eye ailment. Maybe it was depression. Who knows? But he asked for God to take it and God says, sorry. My grace is sufficient for you. What was that out to teach Paul? This, that sometimes it is better to learn to trust in something that will not change than to trust into something that can change in a heartbeat. It's not the good he thought, but he can't deny the good that came. It's on that thought that I want to share something with you. There is a play, a very short play by Thornton Wilder, the guy that write Our Town, that Becky Morgan has been kind enough to adapt for us. It takes its inspiration from that moment in John 5 that Jazz preached on last week. It imagines a pool. It imagines people coming to that pool and waiting for the angels to trouble the waters, which is the name of the short play. And in this short play, there is one who comes with a deep burden of inner pain who is longing for that renewal and release. And this is what happens in the midst of his experience. There is a pool, an immense 
pool of water. It is set inside a vast hall with a ceiling open to the sky. Broad stone steps lead up from the water to the walls of the hall. The water is restless and throws blue reflections upon the walls. The sick, the blind, and the malformed are lying upon the steps. There are long stretches of silence and despair, broken from time to time when one of the invalids groans and turns in his rags, or raises a fretful wail, or a sudden cry of exasperation at the long-continued pain. The sick wait to climb into the pool when the angel of healing stirs the water. Beyond the hall, there is a glimpse of fierce sunlight and empty city streets. Suddenly, the angel of healing appears on the top step. His face and robe shine with a color that is both silver and gold, and the wings of blue and green tipped with rose shimmer in the tremulous light. The angel walks slowly down among the sleeping invalids and stands gazing into the water that already trembles in anticipation of its virtue. Then a new invalid enters the hall and stands on a step by the pool. The newcomer does not see the angel. Come, long-expected love. Come, long-expected love. Let the sacred finger and the sacred breath Stir up the pool. Here on the lowest step I wait with festering limbs, with my heart in pain. Free me, long-expected love, from this old burden. Since I cannot stay, since I must return into the city, come now, renewal. Come, release. There is another invalid who has been lying on the steps. Now he wakes suddenly out of a nightmare, calling out. The angel... The angel has come. I am cured. The invalid flings himself into the pool, splashing his companions. They hang over the brink and several slide in. Then a great cry of derision rises. The fool, fool, his nightmare again. Beat him. Drive him out. The mistaken invalid and his dupes drag themselves out of the water, and he lies dripping disconsolately upon the steps. I dreamt that an angel stood by me, and at last I should be free from this hateful place and its company. Better a mistake in all this jeering than an opportunity lost. The mistaken invalid sees the newcomer beside him and turns on him plaintively. Aye. You have no right to be here at all events. You are able to walk about. You pass your days in the city. You come only at intervals. And it may be that by some unlucky chance, you may be the first to see the sign. You would rush into the water, and a cure would be wasted. You yourself are a physician. You have restored my children. Go back to your work. And leave these miracles to us who need them. My work grows faint. Heal me, long-expected love. 
Heal me that I may continue. Renewal. Release. Let me begin again without this flaw that bears me down. I shall sit here and never remove my eyes from the surface of the pool. I shall be next. Many times, even since I have been here, many times the angel has passed and has stirred the water, and hundreds have left the hall leaping and crying for joy. I shall be next. The angel of healing kneels down on the lowest step and meditatively holds his finger poised above the shuddering water. Joy and fulfillment, completion, content, rest and release have been promised. Come, come long-expected love. The angel without turning makes himself apparent and addresses the newcomer. Draw back, physician. The moment is not yours. Surely, surely angels are wise. Surely, O prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings are caught. The sin in which all my endeavors sink half-performed cannot be concealed from you. I know. It is no shame to boast to an angel of what I might yet do in love service were I but freed from this bondage. Surely the water is stirring strangely today. Surely I shall be whole. I must make haste. Already the sky is afire with the gathering host. For it is the hour of the new song among us. The earth itself feels the preparation in the skies and attempts its hymn. Children born in this hour spend all their lives in a sharper longing for the perfection that awaits them. Oh, in such an hour was I born. And doubly fearful to me is the flaw in my heart. Must I drag my shame, prince and singer, all my days bowed down more than my neighbor? Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble in the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of the living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. The angel swiftly kneels and draws his finger through the water. The pool is suddenly astir with running ripples. They increase and a divine wind strikes the surface. The waves are flung up on the steps. The mistaken invalid casts himself into the pool and the whole company lurches, rolls and hobbles in turmoil. Finally, The no longer mistaken invalid emerges and leaps (laughs) joyfully up the steps. The rest, coughing and sighing, follow him. The angel smiles for a moment and disappears. Look, my hand is as new as a child's. Glory be to God. I have begun again. 
May you be next, my brother. But first, come with me. Only an hour to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. I, I, I do not understand him. And only you have ever been able to lift his mood. Only an hour. My daughter, since her child died, she, she sits in shadow. She will not listen to us. written in a very lofty style, and it goes very quickly, and it's almost unfamiliar, almost too abstract for its own good, and yet the point is clear. Only in love service can wounded soldiers serve. A man who wears a burden of darkness and dourness upon his soul, who rightfully and properly longs for a release from that way of seeing the world, he is the one uniquely furnished in which to speak those same sorts of ideas to those who suffer as he does. The good he sought is not the good that he received, but tell him or anyone else that he hasn't received a good that might be used for good purposes. What Paul is saying to us all is this, No, not everything that happens is good. No, whatever evil befalls you is not what will change overnight or quickly. But yes, there is a good he is properly and able to bring forth even from the thing you thought was impossible. Even what feels impossible does not determine whether a thing is possible. That's the object of our faith the Lord's sovereignty in all things. And the act of our faith then, in response to it, is this. If you are near to suffering, maybe not in it, but near to it, should ever you be prompted to think about Romans 8.28, it is best to be the fulfillment of that verse long before you ever try to speak it. Not because Paul is wrong, not because his theology is defective, not that it should remain unspoken at all times, but in most moments in which you might be inspired to think it, it will always be better to be it, to be its fulfillment before you recite it. Because it is Paul himself who says in other places, what is the fulfillment of Romans 8.28? Weep with those who weep. Bear up their burdens while you can. Do not lose heart or zeal in doing good and especially to the household of God. That's being its fulfillment long before you ever feel the need to say it. That's the act and object of our faith. Brene Brown said this about faith. Faith, I thought, was an epidural, but I found out it was more like a midwife. Friends, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. I can't say the pain will stop soon. But I can remind you that I am here. Why is Paul so confident in that? Because there's one last thing he wants us to set the object of our faith upon. And it is what is found in the last two verses of the passage. It goes so fast and reams and reams of books have been written upon it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It goes so fast. But what he has done there is sketch for you a theology of salvation. What happens to one who has come to find themselves in Christ and called upon to set the object and act of our faith in these ways. And that is a story that began outside of time, for that's where God lives, outside of time. He's not bound by it. And yet he sees a moment in time where he calls one upon unto himself, not for anything impressive in them, but for everything that he might do for them. And in his mystery, that calling is a stirring of the heart, a stirring to believe that it just might be true, even though I can't see it or prove it, a stirring that leads me to believe, to repent, to entrust myself to him, and somehow to wrap your arms around the possibility that what he has done at that cross is to pardon you. To pardon you of all you have done and ever will do. And to account to your record the very same record that was upon his son. To believe that. And then he does this wacky thing. At the end of salvation story, he speaks of a future thing as if it were a past thing. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, Over the last few weeks, what does it mean to be glorified? It is to mean this. Now, finally, there will come a day where you will know him as you are fully known. Where you will see him as he is and you will be like him. And your bodies will no longer subjective to decay. And he speaks of it as if it's already passed. Long before John Updike was an author and a novelist, he was a sports writer. And he was present at Fenway Park. On September 28, 1960, when Ted Williams hit his very last home run in Fenway. And he wrote a famous article remembering that moment that reminds, that offers a famous sentence that has lived throughout the ages. And John Updike wrote in that column this line. Of that ball, it was in the books while it was still in the sky. That there was a certain settled nature to it, even while it was still above ground into the Boston skyline. So certain, though so unfolding. That's what Paul is speaking of here. This salvation that God has wrought through his son is so certain that he can speak of a future thing as if it's already done. That salvation certainty, that's where we set the object of our faith. That's exhibit A in why you might even believe that the Lord is sovereign over your circumstances, no matter how awful and dark they may be. What then is the act of faith if that is its object? Blaise Pascal, famous mathematician, also a Christian, wrote a famous work of apologetics called Pensee. After he died, they were going through his estate. And in that estate, they found the overcoat that he wore all the time, very threadbare, to be preserved. But the woman who found that coat noticed that there was a lump inside the lining of it that was in nowhere else in the coat. And it was too lumpy to feel like it was the filling that had lost its stitch. And they saw a seam. And so they had the audacity to open up that seam. And there in the hem of his coat, they found two exact documents of the same words that Pascal had written in his own hand. On November the 23rd, 1654, Two identical copies of the same parchment that read this. From about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, fire. 
God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers, not of the learned, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Complete submission to Jesus, to my director, eternally in a joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. The object of his faith was on salvation certainty, and his act of faith was to write the confidence of that into the hem of his garment. Whatever you and I need to do to sew that story into the hem of our coat, metaphorically speaking, with all the creativity you can muster, maybe we do that. The story will drift. Other stories will encroach. The story has to remain near. Whatever you got to do to sew it into your coat, do that. And if there's anybody that's going to be creative about that, it will be the kids in this room. Find a way to keep the story close. That's Paul's last word to us. Those are the objects and acts of our faith. Maybe through it, we shall believe it when we have the hardest time doing so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, perish the thought that we think this will be easy. Surely we know there's no way we can prepare to have the very wind of our souls taken from us. But we do ask that you might help us to live in a way and with the Spirit's help to believe that we might hope when everything else tries to take it from us. By your Spirit, help us to see the one in whose name we come and to whose presence we will journey even when our eyes close in death. In his name we pray. Amen.